This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. We're doing Tachias Amesim tonight, and uh, I'm hoping uh, I'm hoping everybody's alive. I'm hoping you're alive, but there's. Uh, but there's alive and there's alive. Yeah, there's alive and there's alive. Alive uh, for most people means like their heart's beating. You know, that they're alive. Hashem, I'm alive. You say, how you doing? I'm alive. You know, we say things like that. And uh, so, or you might hear, I just came from Brooklyn. So in Brooklyn, I spent a week in Brooklyn. People say things in Brooklyn like, like, I'm surviving, I'm surviving. You know, I mean, after all, there's a lot of, there's a whole survivor culture, our culture, you know. So we're all like surviving, you know. And uh, a lot of people think, what's the opposite of surviving? They think the opposite of surviving is uh, dying. But in fact, uh, when you think about it, really, surviving is dying. Surviving is dying, because when you're surviving, it's, it's like you're dead. You feel like you're dead sometimes, when, you, when you're just surviving. And our job is ultimately to be alive. And I would like to share with you guys a little bit of the work I do, um, which is how to be alive. I've been running seminars now for 12 years uh, that are, uh, it's basically a Musservat. It's like, it's kind of Musser with Hasidus. Like the Musser part is where we like, that's the surgery where we kind of rip you open and uh, get to work. And then we sew you up with, with love. So you up with Hasidus. Yeah, so anyway, I've been running these seminars for many years, and the result is that people feel alive like never before. In fact, there's a couple of people in this room who I'm looking around. I've seen a few people in this room who are graduates of the work. And I come here every, no- I come to New York every November and every February to do the work. And the truth is I could just do it in Yerushalayim all the time, but I've, people want me to come. So I come, I do the work here. Normally I do the work every, every, uh, every week in Yerushalayim. It's called The Possible You. And uh, I do it every, sorry, I do it once a month in Yerushalayim. And it's 24 hours long. And it's beretzif. It's 24 hour retzifus. And, uh, and what happens is sometime during those 24 hours, something happens inside and you actually, it's kind of like a combination lock where, where um, over those hours, what happens is we have a radar system that, that, that after enough hours, the radar goes down and I can now go in and, and do the proper adjustments, so to speak. Not that I'm going to do the adjustments. You do the adjustments, but I'll lead you through the adjustments. And then the next thing you know, there's incredible results of connection Connection, because Hashem created the world for His kashus. The whole entire Bria, the whole creation, is for connection for His kashus. And that's the goal. That's the goal of being married, is His kashus. The goal of being a parent, is His kashus. The goal of the Bria Soelam, is His kashus. The entire creation was only for His kashus. But your ability to be miskasha yourself in this world requires that you drop the radar and you allow yourself to get to some very core 
things that we maybe will touch on, but that's not our work tonight. Tonight's Tchiyas Mesa. So let's get involved in Tchiyas Mesa. So it works like this. Uh, I don't have a whiteboard or anything here, do I? Whiteboard. Uh, yeah, where's my Where's my manager? Where's the manager? Where's Yitzhi? Yitzhi. Um, do you mind bringing me a whiteboard and a stand, please? And uh, some pens are right by the left-hand side door, please. Thank you so much. So the uh, maybe uh, Yitzhi, can you handle a whiteboard and a stand and, and pens, or you want someone to go with you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you want to help Yitzi? Help, help. I'm sending Chaim with you, Yitzi. Okay. So, I'd like to share with you guys that there is a there is a distinction, or distinctions in general, are how you become an expert in any particular thing. If you want to be an expert in something. You have to understand the distinctions of it. Like, for example, I should have brought my guitar. Oh, well. You guys want some music? Yeah. Oh, do have a run, run. My car, my car is just on that street to the left. Make sure my guitar gets in here too. Okay. What, what's outside the door? My guitar? Anyway, so listen up. Life is about, if you want to become an expert in something, you have, to, you have to break it into its parts. You have to distinguish its parts. So, for example, the human body has many parts. And so a doctor, a medical doctor, will understand all the parts of the body. And there's actually so much detail that you can have five different types of doctors for eyes. One does cataracts, one does, one does laser surgery, one does... does uh, you know, does an eye doctor for, for glasses and stuff like that. There's different types of doctors because there's many distinctions to the eye. Now, if you want to be a healthy person, do you have to be a doctor? No. You just live your life. And if something goes wrong, we pay money to them for being experts in the distinctions of the parts of the body. So it's the same thing as well for a musician. A musician, that's why I brought up the guitar, a musician, for example, I play guitar, there's six strings. There's the E, there's the A, there's the G, there's a D, there's a B, there's an a, another E. A musician has to know the distinctions of the strings. But for you to enjoy music, my guitar. Thank you so much. Get it? Yeah, that's great. Excellent. You can just set it up over there. Thank you very much. For you to enjoy music, you don't have to know the distinctions between the strings and their proper tuning. You can actually just listen to the music and enjoy the music. And this is a digital tuner that, that handles the vibrations of the strings. Each string has certain vibrations. So like an A string, here's an A. An A vibrates at 220 oscillations per second. You can see it moving. 
I'm expected as a musician to know the distinctions in the strings, know distinctions of the frets. I have to know that stuff. But for you to enjoy the music, you don't even you don't need to know any of these distinctions. Play a little uh, Carliner Purim song. You want to hear a Carliner Purim song? I'm going to Carliner. So it goes like this. Kesher with what I was doing. As a musician, I have to know the distinctions that are going on inside this guitar. Does someone want to set up the easel, or we're just going to leave it like that? <laughs> Would anyone like to make that happen? I'll do it, I'll do it. So to enjoy music, you don't have to know you don't have to know that stuff. I have to know that stuff. And also, you can drive a car to be a mechanic. You don't have to if, to enjoy a car. You don't have to be a mechanic. Something goes wrong with your car. You pay a mechanic to know that stuff. But here's the deal, gentlemen: is there's one thing that all of us have to be experts in. We have to be. There's one thing that you have to be an absolute expert in. And anything less than, anything less than being an expert in that thing is unacceptable. You have to be an expert. You have to be an expert in living. You have to be an expert in life. Because all of us have to be professional livers. We have to be professional livers. And there are certain distinctions for living your life. So just like a mechanic has to know the difference between a spark plug and a cylinder, and a doctor has to know the difference between the iris and the pupil, 
And the musician has to know the difference between the E string and the A string. So too a human being has to know, for example, the difference between acceptance and approval. If you don't know the difference between acceptance and approval, you're going to mess up your relationships. You have to be a professional human being because in life, there are many distinctions that most people don't have. Where are most people? Most people are here. Most people think that if people do what you approve of, you accept those people. And if they don't do what you approve of, they're no longer acceptable. Tell me, what do we think of people who don't accept us? We like them or don't like them? We don't like those people very much. If someone doesn't accept me, it's kind of hard to like them. And when you find out that someone holds of you, that someone actually does accept you, you love that guy. You love people who accept you. Acceptance is very, very important stuff. Let me share with you a little medrash that I'm making up as I go along. Parents are going to have a baby. They're waiting the months to have a baby. The middle of the, the middle of the night, they're sleeping. They're dreaming. The parents are up in Shemayim dreaming. And an angel comes to the parents. And the angel says, we see you're going to have a baby. And we just wanted you to know that in order for that child to be healthy, that child has to be loved no matter what. Unconditional love. Ahava she'eno t'lui b'davar. The parents are like, okay, that's nice. And they said, well, up here in heaven, we decided that address should be yours. And the parents are like, Makes sense. Growing up in our house, why not? And so the angel says, sign here. And the parents sign. Each one signs. Baby's born and the parents forget. They blur acceptance and approval. Kid does something they're not supposed to be doing because kids are kids. People make mistakes. Teenagers are generally temporarily insane. And the parents are blurring things. The kids never learn this stuff. Parents never learn this stuff. Because everyone's walking around like they got it together. Everyone's walking around like, oh, I got this. Kids, no problem. Tati, yeah, I can handle that. Everyone's walking around like they got life in their back pocket. When in fact, so many people are smart about all kinds of things. But when it comes to the most pushed stuff, it's amaratsis, total amaratsis. And so what happens is the, something happened that wasn't approved of and the kids got this totally blurred. So the kid thinks that he's no longer acceptable as a human being. 
as a human being. The kid was doing something that was unapprovable, but he mixed being and doing up. This is a totally different distinction, being versus doing. Every human being lives in two dimensions. You live in who you are and who you're being, and then you live in what you're doing. Many people confuse this. You meet doctors, they say they're a doctor. You can't be a doctor, you can do medicine. You meet another person, he says he's an accountant. You can't be an accountant, you can do math. And do cheshvan. And people think they are what they do. When in fact, being and doing are very separate. Someone can do something, I will approve or I won't approve. But that has nothing to do with my acceptance of that human being, of who they are. I have children. They make mistakes. My little Yisrael Noyach, he's about three now. He's almost four. Week before I left Eretz Yisrael, I forget what he did. It was something really stupid. Oh, I remember. Yeah, he, I don't know how he did it. In a matter of minutes, he took our entire Shabbos tablecloth and had put little colors with all different markers all over the entire thing. It was a, like a five-colored polka-dotted Shabbos tablecloth. Now, I told him, I told him, Noichi, this is patch time. And, and Noichi just goes, like shooting out of the room. Goes into his room, climbs up to the loft. He sleeps up in the loft. I catch him halfway up the ladder. I said, Noichi, where do you want your potch? Up in the loft? You want it down below? Down below. Okay, come on down. Get him over my knee. I said, Noichi, one hard one or three soft ones? <laughs> three soft ones. <laughs> I said, Noichi, if you were three years old and you did this to the tablecloth, no problem. That's cool. Okay? You're almost four, Noichi. This is just straight out like you knew you were doing the wrong thing and you did it anyway. I would never be doing this to you. If, if you had behaved according to your madrega, if you behaved and did something based on your age, no problem. But this was totally, totally not okay. So I gave him the patches. He went for three. One, two, three. He was not happy. And then I held him. Because for him, doing and being, he's not at this shul tonight. He wasn't experiencing the distinction of doing and being. So he automatically might think that because he did something bad, he what? Is bad. Is bad. And for that reason, I have a rule in my house that there's no onus, there's no punishment. A kid doesn't get sent to their room or anything. If I don't have the time to spend with him afterwards, to clearly distinguish who he is, who he is versus the behavior that he did. 
And so I just held Noichi. And I loved Noichi. And I explained to them that what he did is beneath him of who he is. We learn in the Chinuch that if you do things, it will have an external, that external doing will affect your being. It's true. For example, a person who dresses, a person who dresses like a mensch will feel more menschlich. A person who is stingy, he's a stingy guy, but he gives stucker. And he keeps giving the stock and giving the stock. Eventually, he will be what? Generous. He'll go from a Compton to a Nodiv. A person loses his temper. He's easily blows his fuse. But he learns techniques of breathing and relaxing. Whenever he's starting to get hot, he takes 10 deep breaths. And he becomes a more patient person. But there's something where this system of doing to being breaks down. And where it breaks down is that if the being isn't being a constant, if the being isn't being a constant, an, an angry person, but if the being is actually something more core, it's much more core it's to someone's like, it's really deep in there. And it's a deeper thing and it's a more nasty thing because it's not so much a meta of like anger or stinginess, but rather it's a self-defining thing, like a no-goodnik or an, or an idiot because one time the Rebbe asked him to read in front of all the kids And he, he stumbled. He stumbled. He, he, he wasn't able to read. And the kids started laughing. And he decided at that point he's an idiot. He's a tipish. When things happen in our lives, and they happen, between the ages about three and a half to about 12, a lot happens. It gets locked in. Most adults you'll ever meet are living out a story that somehow got locked into them between the ages of three and a half and 12. There are very few adults in the world today there are kids that are really big. I'll never forget one Rav, who I'm very close with in Yerushalayim. Big white beard. Rosh Kolel. Highly respected Jew. Sometimes I'm very close. We're at a chuppah. And he walked up to me and he said, just real quietly next to the chuppah, after the chuppah, he said, I wish I could say at this point of my life, that it doesn't hurt when I don't get called up for a bracha. <laughs> we're, we're big babies. 
with a repeat story that's been repeating and repeating and repeating in our lives, in our marriages, in our fatherhood, in our being kids of our living parents, if they're still alive. I know my being, if I could fill you in a little secret about my father, he's 84 years old now. My father is the son of a businessman. My father is a very serious businessman. He's a son of a very big businessman. And money was what life was all about. They're what was called the American dream. My father came over from Vizhnitz, straight from Marmarsh. He came to America before the war. He sewed ties at night sold them by day up and down the streets but he made it very very big my father grew up also in a money home everything was about money when are you going to make it when are you going to make it when are you going to be somebody what did be somebody mean money it meant making it financial money when are you going to be somebody when are you going to make it in fact last week my father asked me when are you going to be somebody? When are you going to make it? I'm like, well, Dad, you know, I do run an international seminar company. And he's like, that's not what I mean. <laughs> so, well, what exactly do you mean, Dad? And he's like, I'm not sure. <laughs> but as far as he's concerned, oh, no, he told me. Actually, he told me, he said, I always thought you'd make it in business. Okay, yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm 45 years old. I've been in Chinook for 22 years. You know, it's like, hello. But anyway, growing up with a father who only spoke about money, and I was this dreamer kid. I mean, I was this, I didn't become like a Hasidish Balchuva for nothing. I was a dreamer kid. And my father used to show me the stock market every morning with all these numbers. You ever seen the stock page? Yeah? That page just, sw- it was swimming. I was seeing like patterns on it. You know, it makes patterns if you're far enough away. So I was like, hey, look at those patterns. He's like, that's, that's the stock trade, you know, and tried to explain it to me. And it was always Chinese for, for me. So as a little kid, that was fine. But the problem is, is as I grew up, it became more and more of a feeling of every time he spoke about how you're going to make it, that it kind of locked me into this feeling of that I'm a nine-year-old little boy. I'm a nine-year-old little boy. When you're nine, that's great. But not when you're 35, okay? When you're 35 and you're still saying you're a nine-year-old little boy, whenever dad talks about money, there it is. Didn't go away. And it doesn't matter. Think about it, gentlemen. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. If that being is still there, that's what rules your life. If your parents didn't know how to say I love you because a generation came out of the war and we don't even know what happened in the war. We have no idea what happened in the war. First of all, very few people spoke and the few people who spoke 
were only able to tell you when then they brought me there and then they brought me there and then I saw this and I saw that and, I, and we got a sense, we sense, you know, the feeling they had when they saw someone go to the line to the left. We could sense it. We've heard all the songs people sing about the line to the left. But they're never able to describe the soul-crushing torture. And a whole generation came out of there, but the parents couldn't say, I love you. I spoke to a lady today, Hamish, a lady from Williamsburg. Her husband graduated my course. It's highly confidential, the course. I can't give you any details of anything he said. The material's not confidential, but who's there? And Anyway, Hamish, he, he did the course. He, ever since then, his boys have been so well-tracked because these parents have these kids growing up in a modern world while these parents are like mommish, like these parents are like from 200 years ago. Now the father, he still lives his life in a terror world. He lives his life connected to Torah. He's a Rebbe in Yeshiva. He's a Gavaldagid. But he now connects with his boys 100% from here. And the boys don't always do something that he can approve of. Anyway, so the whole way up, the Palisades, whatever. What do you call that thing? Highway? Drive? Parkway. Parkway. Driving up the Palisades Parkway. Whatever street we were on. We got lost. But uh, driving up, the whole time I'm speaking to these people. And I said to the wife, I could tell from her voice, she never says I love you. I could tell. Because their generation, they loved 100%. But love was something you show by doing something for somebody. I do for them. I remember I had a couple from Muncie. I asked the mommy. She said her, her daughter, she's already going in pants. She's like not wearing sneers. I, so she's expecting me to say something about sneers. I said to her, do you tell her I love you? And she says, I've taken care of her. I have clothed her. I took her shopping the other day. I said, that's really nice. Did you tell her I love you? And she says, I cooked for her the other day her favorite thing to eat. And on Shabbos, I baked for her her favorite dessert. I said, well, that's beautiful. That's amazing. But did you tell her I love you? And the husband finally said, honey, you don't say I love you. So this lady on the phone tonight, I said, I said, and I knew she was one of them, so I kept saying, and, and it's really important that you tell them I love you a bunch of times. All the kids, all the way, just keep saying I love you, I love you, I love you. Don't stop saying I love you, and you can even heal the ones who are already married by saying I love you to the married ones, and you'll heal them as well. And she said something, and I don't know, I don't speak Yiddish, there's some word sprat or something, I don't know. Some, there was something about the sprat she doesn't do. And... Sprach, sprach. Yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't speak that sprach. Sorry, I love you is out of out, not part of my lexicon. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, long story short is uh, 
I told her she has to make columns with each kid in each day of the week and check off that she said I love you to each of those kids. We'll see how it goes. How long do you spend on the phone with someone who makes you feel like you're nine years old? Let me show you how my conversations went with my father for about two and a half decades. It was something like this. This is before caller ID. If there was caller ID, I wouldn't pick up. <laughs> Hello? Oh, Dad. Yes, yes. Yeah, it, it's really bad timing. Yeah, I can't speak right now. I'm going, I'm going to Mincha. Yeah, I know it's 1230. I mean, this is my minion. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll call you back. Click. And I live in Yerushalayim, 9,000 miles away. Once again, the conversation ends like that. And he fools himself into thinking that everything's fine and that I share my life with him. But the being is a nine-year-old little boy in a 30-year-old man. And the doing is very short conversations. In fact, I, I was speaking around the world, so I'd speak in Denver. So here I am in Yerushalayim. I fly all the way around. I get to Denver. California's here. And I call my, my mother <laughs> from Denver, and my dad gets on the phone. And he's like, hey, you're already uh, two hours away. Why don't you just come on over? Just pop by. I'll pay for the ticket. Just even five hours. No, Dad, I got to go back to the kids. I got to go back. I can't, I can't really spend any more time in America. So. Now, here's the thing. Is that what we said before is doing leads to being. Guess what? In this particular, in this particular situation where there's a core thing that someone's saying about themselves that might have come from an older sibling. I'm not good enough, or I'm not as good as, or I'm not smart, or I'm not worthy, or any type of thing someone could say in their being. You ready for this? The doing locks it in. The doing actually doesn't fix the being, it actually locks it in place. For most people, their entire life. They'll have that same issue with their dad throughout their entire life. Because the doing is to avoid him. And the being is that I'm a nine-year-old little boy. If the being is something like, a lot of guys fall into this, the being is they're a loser. And the doing is that they're cool. You know this whole cool thing? So they're going to do cool so that they never feel like a loser. Now, are they as long as they're doing cool, what they're doing what they're doing is they're actually insulating loser. They're covering it with insulation. You get that? So the doing actually is making the beings being uh, 
protected. It's protecting it. So that the being is more likely to stay because of the doing. So doing leads to being, like the Chinuch says, when it's a mida, as we described, like also being a ravan, someone who eats, overeats. So the doing will help being helping someone who's overeating by eating less and stuff like that and measuring their food and working on proper diet and getting some exercise in. The doing helps. But when the being is something core and inside of every person is core stuff, so the doing actually locks it in place. And most people will die still covering up the being that they were being. What I've done so far is I've just given two examples. Acceptance and approval, being and doing. These are two examples of distinctions for living. And where we need to put the arrow, watch this, we're going to remove the arrow from being and put it over towards doing. Because when you actually focus on the being and you transform the being, the doing actually goes naturally. Tell me, how hard is it for someone who smokes to quit smoking? It's very hard because there's a certain being that needs to smoke. So if someone wants to focus just on the doing, so then the being is dri really driving the doing. So if they focus only on the doing, they're just going to wind up doing it again later. We have to focus on who we're being. And when you focus on who you're being, the doing comes naturally. I'll tell you something. For example, cigarettes. I happen to love cigarettes. I love tobacco. I love its flavor. I like, the, I like the smoking of it. I like exhaling the smoke. But if anyone knows me in this room fairly well, can you imagine me with a cigarette? No, I, I, I can't do it. Why? Why can't I smoke? Yeah, because, because I, I just can't be the person who does that. That's not who I am. So I will not smoke. When someone has a being of, I'm not smart, how does the doing of learning Tosfos go? How does that go? Not very well. But when someone actually works on the being aspect and realizes he's not stupid, okay, maybe something happened embarrassing in Cheder, and he locked in, I'm stupid. But when you transform the being, the doing changes naturally. Now, this was all an introduction of distinctions. But tonight is Tchias Amazing. So we're going to have some fun. You ready? Here we go. Where's my eraser? Here comes the fun part.
We're going to do now one of my favorite distinctions in life. This is the distinction between the experiential. Can you guys read that all the way back there? Yeah, not so much. It says experiential. And over here, this one says the The conceptual, okay? The experiential versus the conceptual, and where are we most of the time? Right down the middle. We're right down the middle. We think that when we're actually experiencing something, that we're experiencing it. When in fact, a lot of the time, when we think we're experiencing something, we're actually inside the concept of that thing. I mean, have you ever seen someone filming their trip to Israel or something, the old city? You ever seen these people? And you don't see people walking down Forche doing this, but in Jerusalem, every day, someone is walking down with a video camera like that or with their phone, and they're just walking down the street, and they're just like, I'm going to love this. Oh, this is going to be amazing. Wow, I can't wait to get home and see this. And don't you just want to like slap the camera out of their hand and say like, be here. Because where are they holding? Where are they holding? Concept or experience? They're in the concept of a trip to Israel. You see it at the Koisel. You see it at the Koisel. I'm, I work at the Koisel. I work at Asia Torah. I've been teaching Torah 22 years. Uh, Baruch Hashem, I get to reach 10, 15, 20,000 people a year. Now it's like 15, 20,000 a year. And Baruch Hashem, I've also now in the last years uh, been involved in bringing a lot of people who were raised from back to their Yiddishkeit. The, the Koisa, you see people going to the Koisa and they go to touch the wall. Everyone's got to touch the wall. But 99 out of 100 of them are in the concept of being at the Koisa. You get that? They're in the concept of the Koisa. They're not at the Koisa. But one out of those, nine, of those 100 goes down and he touches those stones and he's just like, full meltdown. Because that guy's there. He's really there. He's in the experience of it. He's not in the concept of it. I had a couple in my class from Denmark, in my class at Asia Torah, finish the class. We go outside from the class, and there is... Uh, there we are standing there, and we're waiting for the next class. They're waiting. I'm going to teach another class. And, the, and I asked the couple, I said, so, how long are you learning in Jerusalem? And the husband said, uh, we're not learning in Jerusalem. And so I reached back. I touched the Jerusalem stone. And I looked back at the couple, and I said, uh, where are we? And he says, he says, oh, we have a life in Denmark. 
At which point I went up and touched him and I was like, who's this? <laughs> Is this guy in Jerusalem? Seeing the experience of Jerusalem, the concept of Jerusalem. He's in the concept of Jerusalem. Another example. I had a guy, uh, mind if I use your shoulder for this? This only hurt a little. Right side, please. I only doing this during Shal Shudas because it creates a tremendous bruise. And I take a guy from Brooklyn, learning in the mirror. I do an open Shal Shudas. My house is always packed Shal Shudas, which I really appreciate because I have no concept of time. And if I don't have a minion there, I, have, I will have no minion after shell shooters. So it, I like having an open shell shooters. That way, whenever I figure out it's time. See, the thing is, like, spiritual people get very depressed, mostly Shabbos. And so I'm on this whole thing. I'm, I, I'm on this whole thing of eradicating Motsi Shabbos. I'm trying to get rid of Motsi Shabbos. So, so far, if anyone has any more tips, this is what I've done so far, is you keep shell shooters going, like, really long, and then when Shalshudas finally ends, because you just can't go on, the, uh, what I do is a, like a two-hour Havdalah concert. And in the summer, this is amazing, because when that concert ends, it's time for bed. So in the summer, we've gotten rid of Motsi Shabbos. In, uh, in the winter, though, I don't know what to do at this point. Uh, so far, I've noticed if I book a shear, if I teach a shear Motsi Shabbos after Havdalah, I can make it through. Motsi Shabbos without being too depressed. I have a very hard time. You want to hear a mate? Oh, you, you guys want to hear a story? You guys, you guys in a hurry at all? No. Check out this story. This crazy story. Check out this story. Speaking of Motsi Shabbos, there was a Yid. I'm not going to mention this Hasidis, but it's very close to here. And the. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Whatever, things went wrong in Cheder. We won't go into the gory details. But like so many people, you know, things went wrong in Cheder. And uh, anyway, the, uh, he wound up, he was leaving Yiddishkeit. It wasn't working out. Then he had to leave his parents home because it wasn't good for the other kids. You know the story. And uh, anyway, he winds up at his Zadie's house, who was a Rebbe. And he was living at his Zadie's house, this Rebbe. And he was no longer Froom. But the Zaydi had the acceptance and the unconditional love. He stayed every Motzi Shabbos, two in the morning. His Zaydi stayed in his Shtraimel and his Bekatcher all night until two in the morning. He once went into his Zaydi because his Zaydi didn't sleep much. He went into his Zaydi's room and there was his Zaydi in his closet. And he was taking off his Shtraimel but he was crying. His whole body was convulsing to pull off his Shabbos tonight. And he would put it away sobbing. And then he would take off his Becature and he just would take it off and put it back on and take it off and put it back and crying. And then he'd finally get it off and put it in the rack. So he didn't bother his that He ran out of the room. But he came back every Motzi Shabbos at 2 in the morning and watched his Zadie do it. And he says that watching his Zaydi's pain, taking off his big day Shabbos, Motzi Shabbos, was what held him in. Today he's in a shtaimon, 
pants, everything. And today's. So I go up to this guy from the Mir Yeshiva. He's been learning in Yerushalayim for three years. And I ask him, so where do you live? What do I want to know? I don't know where he lives. Very simple question. He tells me Brooklyn. When he told me Brooklyn, so I just gave him, oops, sorry. I just gave him a punch. And he goes, ow, what was that? I said, where do you live? He's like, Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm like, where do you live? You know, he's like, like, like Brooklyn. <laughs> and I'm like, where do you live, man? You know, and he's like, ah, he's not going to say Brooklyn again, because now it's like, now it hurts, you know. At which point my son leans over to him and says, uh, you studied the mirror, right? And he's like, yeah. He's like, you've been there a few years? Yeah. He says, you, uh, you probably live in like a Bacardira in Basis Royal or something. He's like, I do. And he says, why don't you tell him that? <laughs> so he says to me, I live in Bates Israel. I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> Last story, just because it's Muncie. I'm at a Hanukkah's a bias in, uh, in a place called, uh, I forget what it is. What's your neighborhood called? Uh, it's where Yitzis lives. I don't know where Yitzis is. Uh, Bukharan area. And, uh, Hanukkah's and there's a chosid there, a bocher. He looks about 18, 19. And the whole time he's rubbing a key, like some lucky charm key. I left him alone. I mean, obviously, this was pretty extreme OCD. So I didn't bother the kid. But when we finally ran out of what to say at the table, I decided I'll, I'll ask him about the keys. I was like, hey, bocher, what's with the key? And he was one of these guys who, like, he talks to you, like, down his nose. You ever seen so I'm like, what's with the key? He says, it's the key to the mikveh. <laughs> the mikveh? Not bad. And I'm a mikveh freak, so it's like, like the key to the mikveh is like, it's worth it more than anything. So, so I'm like, which mikveh? He says, the mikveh in Muncie. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, if only we knew that earlier. Uh, we're not in Muncie. And he says, don't say that. <laughs> we live in the concept of life. Our lives are happening here and now. And we live in the concept of life. I happen to love beer, okay? I built up a lot of concepts around beer. Beer is just beer, but I made like beer into, I like beer, okay? I, I'm really into beer, and thank God Israel has become like, uh, you know, these secular Israelis are always crazy about something, so now they're crazy about boutique breweries. Boutique breweries, I'm particularly happy about their craze, about boutique breweries. And every Lail Shabbos, right after Kiddush, that's when I save my boutique beer from an Israeli brewing company. And my daughters run to the kitchen fridge and they pull out the frosty mug. 
and they uh, pour me out the beer in the frosty mug and they bring it to me. But every once in a while, I drink the beer, I put down the mug, and I say, oh, I forgot to drink my beer. And my kids are like, you just drank the beer. I said, no, I forgot to taste. I was in the concept of my Lail Shabbos beer. I missed the beer. Bring me another beer. <laughs> now, you might call this justification of two half liters of beer. But I, I literally missed the beer. And how many times have you missed Kiddush? How many times do you miss Shmona Answer? How many times do you miss Krishna? We live in the concepts of life as opposed to life. It's just a matter. This one's a fun one because it's just a matter of giving a snap. Everyone give a snap right now. One more time together. Snap out of it and snap into life. Get out of the concept of being in the Thursday night sheer. Oh, Thursday night usually get chillin'. Is there any chillin' left? Oh, man. This is the second talk I've given in months and I missed both chillin's. I wound up eating beans. Like... Why become flashing over beans? But I was desperate. <laughs> What's that? Monday. Yeah. Does Seven Eleven still do the chon? Listen. The experience. I happen to be a Talmud of a, of a Rebbe. I'm a Pins Karliner Choset, but, but I'm a Talmud of another Rebbe who's, my, who's just my Mordera. He's taught me most of my Torah. He's a very reclusive man. He pushes away everybody. He like, doesn't want anyone around him. And he, uh, his name's Rav Sholem Shachne Friedman. And he's the, the brother of the, Hernish, the brother-in-law of the Hernish Teipler Rebbe, Mottl Tversky in Brooklyn. He's his brother-in-law. He married, the, he married Rav Muttel's sister. And his chassidus is called Hornishtaipel East. It's in Yerushalayim. But you can't be his chassid because he's like bug repellent and you're the bug. <laughs> he only sleeps like two hours a day. All he does is learn, 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 learn. And... He's fully experiential. He's like, he just doesn't, he doesn't go conceptual at all. And my wife and I made the grave error of going to him for Rosh Hashanah dinner. When we were young marrieds, we went to him for Rosh Hashanah dinner. And there I am at the men's table. I'm right next to the Rebbe. I used to, I was his Talmud Muvchak for many years. Now I can barely get a seat over there from the, the few Talmudim who have this the moral strength to stay with him and not deal and be able to, you know, you know, it's like if you're if you're the bug and he's the repellent, that some bugs are kind of resistant to the repellent. And the, those these are the guys that stuck. Anyway, we're sitting there, and the Rebbe grabs his kiddush cup, 
pours it full of Kiddush wine. He stands six foot five. He's very tall, gigantic head, huge eyes, and he looks like E.T. And, and he's... The people at Eshatar call him Yoda. And he's... Uh, and he's, he's got his Kiddush cup in his hand. And he starts Kiddush. Savri Moronon, whatever. Baruch. His face turns red like a tomato saying Baruch. Wine has gone everywhere. He's shaking. There's almost no wine left in the cup. He finally finishes Baruch. His son's the whole time pouring more wine. <laughs> But here's, here's, here's the clincher. What's the next word, everybody? Ato, right? Not when you're the Rebbe, okay? No, ato is not the next word. Boruch is its own experience. There is no next word. There's no next word after Boruch. And so the Rebbe stood there and eventually opened his eyes, puzzled, looks over at his son, motions to the shelf where the sitter is. His son grabs the sitter, brings the sitter over to him, and points to the word Atu. And the Rebbe goes like this. He looks at this. He's like, I can do this. No, he's like, Atuh! Wine everywhere. Sun keeps trying to refill it. The next word you can't say. It's shame Hashem. You think he knew what the next word was. After about a half hour, we had only gotten to like Haolam. My wife, I'm looking straight across the rooms. I'm by the men's table, and then there was a women's table right there. It was, it was family, but it was, it was men's and women. My wife and I are looking at each other. Just, we're like dying, you know. We're dying. She's, she's like eating her arm, you know, like, because we didn't get, you should, we didn't know you're supposed to like eat a big meal before this whole thing started. You know, she's like. There's no word after Atta. Most people, most people, they say Chata. I don't know what Baruch did wrong. Baruch Chata. <laughs> Baruch sinned. Baruch Chata. And of course, everyone's Russian when it comes to Haolah. You know, Russians can't say hey, they say hey. It's but all of us, all of a sudden, become Russian when we make a bracha. Melech haolam. Melech haolam. What kind of word is that? Melech haolam. Melech gets its own reality. Melech's amazing. Melech's like, like, it's the king. And the king is like, Saying, you can hang with me, you can be in my kingdom, you can go do your own thing. I'm, no pressure. 
Choose me. Or don't you? It's that kind of king. It's a melech. It's not a, he's not going, uh, you know, uh, how do you say, uh, a, uh, how do you call it, despot, a dictator, a shaltan, a moshal. You can connect or not connect. What a chance to connect. Imagine a king invited you to his palace and said, you can live with us. You can be with me. I'm not going to force you. You can leave and stay, but hang around. That's Melech. How alarms also, it's its own amazing thing. How many chuppas have I been to? We're rabbis who are pretty serious rabbis who get out there and all of a sudden the word Melech's become like this giant, amazing kavana. So the brach is like this in the chuppah. What happened to Bochata? You understand? It's like there's. And there's a chuppah. It's like every word, it's gold. Life is gold. Concept. We live in the concept of life. Tomorrow night, Kiddush, I expect every man in this room to be making Kiddush like this. Yeah, every word, squeeze it, squeeze it, squeeze its juice. Juice the orange of every word. Alive. You look across that table, get out of the concept of your wife and experience, this is the wife who's dedicated her life to you. She's let go of everything. She mothers your children. Her entire body gets like possessed for nine months for you to bring you children. Right across the tables, this woman who's dedicated her life to you. Tomorrow night you get to Shabbos dinner. Sense her. Sense it. You see your kinderlach at the table. You hold your little babies. You hold your kids. It's, it's priceless. But you got to get out of the concept of, oh my gosh, us fathers. <laughs> There's so much on our plates. There's so much on our shoulders. We get back to our families after so much going on. And they're all like little chicks waiting for a worm. You know. I'm just going, the, the, like, this is how we, the concept, like, it's just, like, now you're being needed again. And you catch yourself. Everyone give a snap. You catch yourself, and you just stop and see that child. And experience that child. And when you taste the Shabbos food, taste it. Don't be in the concept of your challah. Don't be in the concept of your fish. Stop missing life and start experiencing life. This is your chance. 
your body has been lined, your entire body has been lined with nerve endings, pleasure sensors. God has lined your body with pleasure sensors. He's added all kinds of extra detail to the eardrum to hear music. Wow. But we miss it half the time. The reason I have 11 speakers and two amplifiers in my car is only because of this class. Because once I started snapping, everyone give a snap. Once, once I started snapping, I no longer was in the concept of listening to music when I drive somewhere. I'm, I'm, I'm in the music. I am the music. I'm, I'm totally experiencing it. And the drive. And the drive. Your eye has such an ability of distinction of visual reality. They'll never come up with a lens that can handle what's happening all around you. Think about where you are right now. You think you can't see behind you. You can even see behind you. I mean, you can't see it, but you sense it. Have you ever noticed you'll be davening and you'll, you'll feel someone's looking at you? But before you even notice, you kind of open your eyes and look over there. And you see there was someone actually looking at you. And then, of course, you feel like this. <laughs> hey, I'm on. <laughs> Your eyes are incredible sensors. Such incredible ability to see. But how many of us live through those winter storms and we're in the, already in the concept of like... Okay, when the snow hit, it was beautiful, but after a while, it was like, enough already. When the concepts of life, as opposed to being in life itself. I was recently in the happiest place in all of Earth. I was in the happiest place in all of Earth. It's called Vishnitz Muncie. Happiest place, such happy people. Everyone was just so happy, was smiling. Everyone was under the age of three. And these kids were running around, they were so free, they were so totally in the experience of their lives. Every one of us spent the first years of our lives in experience mode. And then we got older. We got older and we started like being in the concepts of things. Started getting concepts. And we slowly let the experience of life go. But it's just a matter of a snap. Everyone give a snap. A snap and you get back to the experience of life. You're going to cry more. You'll cry more. I was at a shiva in, uh, in, uh, in Yerushalayim. Not a shiva, a, uh, I mean, I've also been at a shiva in Yerushalayim, but I was at a, uh, a leviah. And the son is crying and crying because the family, where are they? In the concept of death or the experience? Experience. 
But where is all the rest of the people at the Leviah? Constant. Because you might ask yourself, where do, why do we do this? Why do we go to the concept of thing? The answer is, is that when life is pretty raw, life's coming at you. And so when we go to the concept of it, and we match it to some other past concept, it makes life safer for us. Experiencing life's like really intense. It's like coming at you. So the family who'd normally be conceptual about death got snapped out of it. And all of a sudden they're like totally crying and there. Anyway, I was at this Levi and the son is speaking and I'm, I'm crying with the son. I'm mamish mourning with this boy who's talking. He was giving a aspit. He was talking about his father. And after the Levi, I walked out and uh, someone came up to me and said, I had no idea you knew him. I said, I, I don't know. I have no idea actually who Levi it was. He says, you've got to be kidding me. You're crying and crying and crying in this Levi. You don't know who he is? What are you doing here? I said, I had a meeting at the Sheffa Mall, 15 minutes break before the meeting started. I saw a Levi, it's a mitzvah. I went in. He said, well, what's all the crying? What, are you emotionally unstable? <laughs> no, I'm not emotionally unstable. I'm, but I was experiencing the, the words of the sun. You cry more. You also give more. Because one of the things we conceptualize very much is schnorrs. Yeah. Uh, they come to your door and you're like oh brother <laughs> here we go you know this is a good reason not to put like a nice chandelier in your foyer you know you don't want them staring at your chandelier and stuff that means you're going to have to add a zero or something to that thing so you'll give more because you stop conceptualizing people and when that guy comes to your door, you experience him. When I first learned the difference between experiential and conceptual, that day, the bank manager, my bank, in Israel, you're allowed to go into the minus in your bank account. Everyone lives off the minus. Yeah? So my bank manager, everyone gets a limit. So my limit at that point in my life was 14,000 shekels. So the bank manager called me, he says, you're at 14,000, you've got to get some money in there tomorrow. And I'm like, no problem, no problem. I'm like, oh man, what am I going to do? Yeah, that's when we call America. <laughs> so funny. when you go around Brooklyn, everyone's so resentful already of paying Israel's bills. You know, For some reason, if you live in America, you're supposed to pay Israel's bills. <laughs> Wild. So anyway, so the... Uh, Anyway, the bank manager called. So, anyway, people are coming to my door. I'm not giving a lot of money. People are giving like five shekels, 10 shekels, 20 max. And uh, finally, I'm going to bed that night. And that, but that night, I'd heard conceptual versus experiential. And I, uh, this guy comes to my door. I wouldn't let him in. The other ones I let in, I was like, I got to go to bed. So I said, just tell me your story at the door here. And he breaks out a photo album and starts showing me it's laminated pictures, laminated photos of his wife's mental health bills, including medications and, 
and psychologists, psychiatrists, and it's just going on and on. And he's got highlighted in yellow the, the price of each bill. And he's actually a Malamud. He works. He's a Malamud in B'nai B'nai. Bill after bill. After a while, he starts noticing that there's drips landing on the page. And he finally looks up at my face and sees I'm crying. And he says, are you all right? I said, am I all right? Are you all right? And he falls into my arms and, and cries. And we both cry in my doorway. And then, of course, I brought him in. <laughs> and we spoke for like an hour. And we became very good friends. We're friends for many, many years now. And he's helped me with my kids' stuff. I've done stuff in you know, my life that he's helped me with. He's a very wise man. And I've helped him with one of his teenagers because I work with kids who are off the derrick. And he had a teenager going off the derrick. I helped him with his kid. And uh, we've had an amazing relationship for many, many years. When you give that snap, everybody, and you leave the concept of life, and you get in the experience of life, amazing stuff happens. Amazing stuff. But I want to share just for a minute in closing, and then maybe you guys want to sing a nigga there too? Yeah. Let's sing a nigga together. I think all these men together, wow. We could do something. Is there a lighting? We change lighting here? Candles? So we'll do that in a minute. But they. Also, I, I don't know if you guys want to hear one of my famous Kirov stories. I've, I've got some Odyssey amazing things that happened over the years. I don't know if you guys want to hear one of those. I could give you one of those. But the, uh, I just want to explain where this is all coming from. When we were young, when we were little kids, we were like sponges. We just sponge everything in. We sponge everything into ourselves. And everything happening out there was happening in here. So, for example, if someone's father left him in shul, his tati left and he was left in shul, you know, tatis make mistakes. They leave and they go, to, they go home and the kid's still in shul. And the kid comes running out and sees the car driving off, the, off into the distance. Tati! Now the Tati could come back literally 30 seconds later, but it's too late. Guys, tell me, what are some of the things, remember we did doing and being? What are some of the things that a kid might say whose Tati left for the house before the Tati was able to get back and pick him up? Even in those 30 seconds. Someone give me an idea what are some of the things he might have said. Doesn't care about me, which means I'm, I'm, I'm not worth it. What else might he say? Doesn't love me. What else? I mean, I'm not lovable. And it's not about his father. By the way, who's the dummy, the kid or the father? You guys are like, you want to protect the, the, the father. Like, he's not a dummy. That was me last week. What I mean by who's the dummy, meaning the father's job is to keep an eye on the kid, not to leave him in, you know, in shul. But who does the kid think the dummy is? His father or himself? Himself. When we grow up, we're like sponges. Everything that happens out there is happening in here. You, we, watching the movie, we'd figure it's the father's problem, but really it's our problem. Everything happening out there is happening. I've met when I deal with divorced kids, kids of a divorce. 
The kid always thinks it's their fault. You ask the kid, he says, if only I had been a better kid, they would have stayed together. Tell me, what's the only thing that would have kept them together? The kid. But the kid thinks it's him. And we sponge in and sponge in all kinds of stuff. And eventually we can't take it anymore. And we finally lock ourselves off from the world. At around 12 years old, you say to yourself, I am tired of having the world affect me so much. When you're born, you're like a little piece of clay. You can go in any shape. But later, around three and a half years old, when you start becoming self-aware, the stuff happening to you is like pushing in. It's in making indentations on your clay. But at around 12 years old, you finally say, I don't want anyone pushing in on me anymore. And when you finally say, let the world be out there and let me be in here, I don't want to be touched like that anymore. At that point, you start going conceptual. That's when we start living in the concept of life. Why? Because experiencing life is too painful and it's too dangerous for us. And so ever since then, we've lived in the concept of life. But gentlemen, we're adults now and we want to live life here and now alive. It's no longer necessary to be in the concept of life. Because how many, I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many married men in here were, at, were in the concept of their own chuppah? Probably most. You know, they have a famous saying that chuppahs are wasted on the young. And there's many meanings to that, including all the tshuva you get and the being forgiven of your sins. But another meaning is that a chosen so nervous under his chuppah, so much going on, you got the entire community all of a sudden surrounding you, all about you, that we wind up even missing our own chuppah because we're in the concept of our chuppah instead of experiencing it. Last night I was at the chasen of a man, 62 years old, first time he was ever married. He didn't miss a minute of that chuppah. He was just eating it up. And he was just smiling and shining. 62 years old from the Upper West Side. Grew up in Brooklyn. He was just... He was, he was there. I'll share with you in a minute a cure of story. I just want to let you guys know that I'm not, in New, I'm not actually in New York to be with you tonight. This is wonderful. I'm really enjoying it. It's great. But I come to New York every November and every February to run seminars. I've been running it for 12 years. I got some 3,000 graduates. I don't make more money by coming here and running it here. I run it anyway every month in Yerushalayim. It's the same price there. I'm not here for the money. I appreciate money because I'm marrying off my daughter in three weeks. Mazel tov, But I could just be running the seminar in Yerushalayim and not having my family go through a tailspin of why I'm not there three weeks before our first wedding. But the reason I'm here is because I'm dedicated. I've been coming every year in November and February for several years now. And I didn't want to let down the guys in Brooklyn or the guys in Muncie who I promised to be here. I didn't know my daughter you know, was getting engaged, so I always come now. Before Purim, come after the Chagim, and I come before Purim. 
The seminar works on three levels of intensity. Uh, it's a lot. The group's very intense, amazing group, highly confidential, but intensiveness together. Second is time. It's many hours together. It's going to be the men's seminar is going to be Motzi Shabbos, seven thirty at thirty four Wallenberg Circle at the Bernfeld Residence, thirty four Wallenberg Circle. It's fairly close to here. It's just down Forche and onto College Road. 34, there. that's going to be at 7.30 till 11.30 at night. Sunday, all day. It's going to be from 10 a.m. till 7 p.m. There will be breaks. And it will be also on Monday night for four hours and Tuesday night for four hours. Everything's built so men can work or learn Torah. It's Motzi Shabbos. Most men aren't working Motzi Shabbos. Sunday, all day. Monday after work, Tuesday after work. You will not recognize yourself on the other side of this work. There's something very special about the shurim that you'll hear. But when you put it over time and intensity and you're guided through the experience, something magical happens to you. You're able to actually crack the code on the years that have defined your adulthood, three and a half to twelve. Every adult you meet is being led by three and a half to 12 years old, which does not make him much of an adult. It's a combination lock. It takes time. We have to move through all the different codes in order to crack it. And when we crack it, something very special happens. Something happens in your marriage. Something happens in your life. You do have to be psychologically sound to do it. Anyone with a history of any issues in psychology, any, uh, meaning any, any uh, health issues in their mental well-being, uh, should not apply. It's, it's, it's intensive. Not that any of the concepts aren't something they can handle in an hour, but in this level of intensity, you don't want to crack that guy's code. <laughs> you don't know what's coming out and crack his code. Yeah. So anyway, someone like that's not welcome. They're, they, they, they're welcome, but they're not welcome to join the seminar. Yeah. The, uh, anyone can come to Motzi Shabbos to hear the first night. Um, you can also, it could be that it's going to get full. We have a capacity in it. And the, I would suggest buying a ticket online. Those who go online, it's thepossibleu.org. Thepossibleu.org. Don't go to .com. It will not help you. Okay? Thepossibly.org, you can reserve a ticket. And I'm telling you, there, there is nothing like it. It's all word of mouth. Advertisement does nothing. People just keep sending their friends and sending their friends and sending their friends. And not because they say you should do this, it's because people see them and say, what happened to you? Something has shifted inside your very being. Remember being? Something shifted in your being. You can shift your being. You may say, like, who is this kid from California, Balchubu, who somehow figured out how to crack the code? The answer is, it's not me. This is exactly what was going on in a city called Navardok. It's based on the, a safer called Madregas Haadam. It's what used to happen in a city called Navardok. There was a neighboring city called Kelm that did it, and there was a third city as well. The Goyim came and destroyed them. We've been through nothing but hell ever since then. 
But when I discovered these principles and learned these classes, one of which I've shared with you, but how to crack the code on those years of our lives that have become the defining combination of how we live as adults, which is not okay. That is not professional. So I was able to create this seminar. It took a lot of work. It's been through a lot of evolution. But in the last like 10 years, it has become just an amazing formula for personal transformation like nothing else. I've had many graduates who have done all kinds of other seminars. Those seminars, they went in. It was really exciting. They got them all jazzed. Got them even public speaking, which we will not be doing. And then they left. And how were they about a week later? What do you say? Right where they were when they started, only less money in their pocket. The possible you is a transformational experience that causes a fundamental shift that is yours forever. And it only gets stronger over time. I'm giving you my personal invitation and you should know that I'm dedicated. Anyone who walks in that room, I will take you all the way. I will take you all the way. I'm a very committed and very dedicated person. I can get very intense when it comes to saving a person's life. Normally, I'm saving people's spiritual lives. But in this particular case, it's more talking about who we are as people. I'm putting it out there in a very big way to you guys. Probably I'm extra confident because... I've just finished a bunch of seminars. I just finished one in Yerushalayim. There were unbelievable transformations. I then did another one in Yerushalayim for women. Unbelievable transformation. I just finished two in Brooklyn. And I have seen men heal their lives and heal their relationships with their wives and their kids throughout those days. The women's seminar is going to have an intro as well Sunday night. Also, Wallingburg 34 at 9 p.m. But the women's seminar is actually Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 10 a.m. till 5 p.m., seven hours a day. It's going to be 21 hours just like the men's 21. The women's going to be 21 as well. You will not recognize your daughter. You will not recognize your wife after this. Amazing stuff happens there. I, I, I can't, I, there's no words that can give it justice because it's not about the words even said there. There's something that happens with the group. There's something that happens with the time spent. And there's something that happens when I take you through it. It doesn't have to be me. It could be anyone. But at this point, it's me. And I bless everyone here to be doing it instead of me. Because then I won't come to America anymore. No offense. But I don't particularly like leaving Eretz Yisrael. I'm a big tzioini. Big yeah. I don't like leaving Eretz Yisrael. I don't make any more money by coming here and run the same seminar there. Take this offer. It's an offer of a lifetime. Your life is too beautiful. You have too much living to do to continue inside a loop that comes from your childhood. Before I tell you a cool story, of a Baal Shiva story, I'll just share with you. 
a quote from Michelangelo, who was one of the greatest sculptors and artists of all time. One of his greatest sculptures was of King David, Florence, Italy. I saw it myself. It's a very tall sculpture of King David. I don't understand anything about sculptures. As far as I'm concerned, it's a pestle and should be destroyed. But that's my more radical side. The, uh, just kidding, it shouldn't be destroyed. Well, maybe it should. But maybe it was just knock the nose off or something. So, listen, the, uh, they asked Michelangelo, how is it that you took from a marble rock and created David out of it? And Michelangelo said the following. He said, David was in there. I just removed what was in the way. I see amazing men in this room. Come take a little chance to see if there might be something in the way of something very powerful underneath who you've been till now. Crazy Balchivas Kirov story, you want one? Okay, I'll give you a quick one, then we'll sing. Now, none of them are quick. This is a good one. I think you'll enjoy this one. Yitzi, can you just choose the story? We got, uh, we got either the, the guy who was reincarnated as a dog, my Talmud who was reincarnated as a dog after he died. Never tell you that one? Did I ever tell you that one? Uh, then we got uh, Yitzi manages everything. Also, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Yitzi. So thank you, Yitzi, very much. So the uh, we can do the 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 Hasidim who didn't pay the the guy for their fire escape in Brooklyn. You guys want that one? That one. Or uh, we also got the South African with the shark attack and the uh, and the Goyeta and yeah. what? <laughs> you only get all of them when there's a bonfire <laughs> and a lot of beer, <laughs> micro beer. What? Mozart Shabbos. Well, that's the thing. That's the seminar. It's, it's, it's funny. All I want to do is get back into Eretz Israel, but I'm so experiential that like there's not enough time here. Yeah, I'm so. It's crazy how experiential I am. By the way, if you become so experiential. Don't forget to get like a watch. <laughs> hey, crazy stuff happens when you're this experiential. You know, I'll be, I'll get a phone call from my wife, and she'll hear the suspension on my mountain bike. You know, because I'm like flying down terraces on some ancient mountain, and uh, and she's like, "Just tell me that's not your suspension, because I got a, you know, a little, I can answer here, you know, between drop-offs. You know, I fly off this thing, answer." You know, as I'm listening to loud music, you know, klezmer, and uh, press the button. She's like, tell me that's not your suspension, I hear. And I'm like, meaning the bike suspension. I'm like, it is, why? She's like, do you realize you're making a bracha under your Talmud's chuppah in one hour, and you were supposed to pick me up to go to the wedding? Where are you? And I'm like, uh, Carmel Forest, Haifa. And she's like, you gotta be kidding. <laughs> anyway, but Baruch Hashem, it was a Karlbach wedding. And I still picked up my wife, 
brought her to the south by uh, below Beit Shemesh. Those, what are those caves? Bar No, no. Yeah, Bar Kokhba caves down there. And I still, I walked in for my bracha like three hours later. It was perfect. So, uh, I don't know when, which, what, fire escape? Okay, so check this out. These chassidim in uh, New York hired who they thought was a goy, because his name was Bueller, Bueller uh, Ironworks. So they hired Bueller. Bueller is doesn't look very Jewish at all, so they had no idea he's Jewish, last name Bueller. Turns out there was a town in Germany, it was Yeki. There's a town in Germany called, called Bülten. And that he was from Bülten, that family, so he's called Bueller. Anyway, you know, they paid their installments, got all the steel, paid the installments, got it put up. But once the fire escape was up, guess what? No more payments. Hey, the fire escape's up. We want a fire escape. There it is. You know, as far as they were concerned, everything was done. Except Bueller is the straightest guy. He's a yeki. Straight, straight, straight. Everything's straight. And this was his first time ever working with people in black hats. He never worked with them before. But all of a sudden, they didn't know him. Sounds like a big Hiloshim. I think it was a big Hiloshim. But the worst part about it was Bueller was Jewish. And they didn't treat him like a Jew. Later, Bueller's daughter, she went over for her junior year abroad in Tel Aviv. She's studying in the university there. Anyone who goes to Tel Aviv University is really just going to Israel to party. So they're a secular family. I mean, completely secular family. No concept of milk, meat, shellfish, anything. And she goes to Tel Aviv. She's partying. Eventually, a lady comes by in like a potato sack haluk, knocks on her door. A lady by the name of Miriam Cosman. You heard of uh, Masterdoff? Avi Cosman? This is his wife. Knocks on the door. Bueller, the, the, the girl Bueller, opens up the door and says, and she says, you know, would you like to learn Torah? And so she says, yeah, I'd like to learn Torah. And so she brings her to B'nai Brock and teaches her Torah. And she goes to a Torah shir. It's kind of funny because uh, the, she had taught her, they had washed for bread. And, uh, and she taught her how to do al to the Sidaim, washing. And uh, later she told her that you should know, by the way, we wash every morning. As soon as we wake up, we don't even get out of bed. <coughs> we wash right by our bed, on the edge, leaning over our bed. And so what happened was Bueller, when she went back to her dorm room at university, she put a piece of bread by her bed. <laughs> she didn't explain that this was something that had nothing to do with bread. So she went back there every week to learn but every day she washed on bread <laughs> and right on her bed. And uh, she finally went there for Shabbos like half a year later. She went there for Shabbos. She, put, she, she took a piece of challah from the Lail Shabbos meal, brought it to the bedroom, put it right next to the bed. In the morning she woke up. You know, Miss, Mrs. Cosman, Rebetzin Cosman, woke her up. And she, she washed on the side of the bed. 
and she immediately made hamotzi. And she's seeing the bread, and, and Rebbitz and Cosman's looking at her like, what is this? You know, what are you doing? She says, you told me, we wash every morning. Anyway, so check this out. She, when she becomes Balas Chuva, she comes back to her senior year at Brandeis University. Her father sees her, dressed sneezdig. Father sees her, she's doing Shabbos. And he says to her, listen, I'm just telling you one thing. No matter what you do, do not bring me home a man in a black hat. She didn't know what that meant. Because there had been a story 30 years earlier that she had never heard. Because she was just, uh, you know, she wasn't even born yet. Tell me, how do I look? This is who she brought home. (laughs) Bueller was not happy. (laughs) He said to her, that's not what I meant. I mean, it is what I meant, but this is not what I meant. He was not happy. And he, uh, he let it be known that we're not really welcome at the Bueller house. And so we went back to Yerushalayim, whatever. We lived in Yerushalayim, and we had a kid. And the mommy, my, my wife's mommy, she just wants to have the kids. She's Hungarian. She's not yekish. She's a Hungarian lady. She wants the kids. Bueller says... No, not coming. Another kid born. She's like, please let them come. And Bueller finally relents that we can come to his house under one condition. Listen to the one condition. No pez, no kipa, no tzitzis, no davening, no brochas, and no Shabbos. And my wife is indignant. My wife says, he said, he said we could come, but no kippah, no tzitzis, no, no, you know, davening, no, oh, no tefillin, for sure. So my wife's indignant. She's like, we're not coming. No way. And I said to my wife, what are you talking about? Of course we're coming. And she's like, how can you say that? I said, we're going. It's family. Family first, right? Family first. Blood is thicker than values. <laughs> Family. And she's like, well, uh, I guess if the kids are really little. So we flew to the U.S. and we go over there. And we didn't go to their house. Where'd we go? The Gap. We go into the Gap and we get me all dressed up. We started with khaki pants. I'm wearing khaki pants, a plaid lumberjack flannel shirt. And I'm looking, and a little cap. I put my pants up in the cap, tuck my sitzes in. I'm looking at the mirror, quite enjoying myself. My wife's like, "Don't get too into it," you know. And I was like, "This is fun," you know. Anyway, we go to we go to their house, and now, do I seem like the kind of Jew that you can get to hide that he's Jewish for a week straight? What do you think? You think I'm gonna do okay or? I might fail. <laughs> now, let's just add one little part. I'm a Carliner. 
Okay? If we don't scream when we daven, we didn't even daven. But I can't scream when I daven. Now, we were in a little bungalow on the side of the house. So the first day I did Shachris Min Chamarif, nice and quiet. The second day, Shachris Min Chamarif, nice and quiet. It was the third day. I, I, that's not called davening for me. I can't daven like that. And so something happened to me. I got to Shirasayam and I just said, that's it. By Carlene, everything's Shirasayam. So we do it, you know, in Carlene, we do it line by line. You guys know Psuka de Zimra by us is not in stolen, but in Pins Carlene's the old style. Psuka de Zimra on the weekdays is 45 minutes. And on Shabbos, it's an hour and a half. And when we, and we do every paragraph together, we do not start the next paragraph until the last person's finished a paragraph. And we get to Shirasayam, we go every line together. But when I got to Tipalalem Amos Avafachad, I went crazy. Tipalalem! I was thinking about all the Goyim out in the Berkshire Mountains. This is out in the sticks in the mountains of western Massachusetts. Tipalalem Amos Holding my talus. And then I started thinking about all the Jews, all the Jews that are hidden out there, hiding their Judaism. And I fall flat on my face and start screaming. my feet and I'm under my tallest. The only time it paused was just to get another breath. But in the back of my mind, I'm that water. You know, I'm actually going to have the coke just to line my throat because that killed my throat. Remember, I'm the guy who doesn't smoke. <laughs> I also don't drink these kinds of things. But I'll drink a little. <coughs> I made a bracha already. Conceptual? I think you might as well experience it. <laughs> so, anyway, so, now in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, thank God I closed the windows. Thank God I closed the door. Thank I closed the curtains, too, for, like, insulation from the sound. But little did I know, right outside the bungalow is my father-in-law like this. <laughs> my mother-in-law going... <laughs> my wife's just going like... My brother-in-law's like... The dog is like everyone. They're all outside the bungalow, right outside the window of where I am. Eventually, though, I feel a hand on my shoulder. My kids were there too. I feel a hand on my shoulder. My wife had come into the bungalow, into the back room, and she's put her hand on my shoulder to comfort me and calm me down. And you know, when you're crying and someone puts their hand on your shoulder, you immediately calm. Start calming. She gets me seated up on the side of the bed. 
And I can't talk because I'm still in Pesukah Zimra. I'm after Baruch Shemar. So, and I'm doing this like, you ever seen a kid do this? Like, <laughs> I'm like sniffling like this. And anyway, I finish davening. At the end of the davening, I come out to the front room. There is my wife with a roller bag, you know, a carry-on roller bag. She doesn't say, she doesn't say a word to me. She just walks out of the bungalow. I follow her. She takes me all the way to her mom's car that's on. The trunk is open. She puts the roller bag in the car, closes the trunk, takes me around to the front seat, and she only says to me four words, you're going to Boston. <laughs> closes the door, totally disappointed. For our week trip, week is now spelled W-E-A-K. <laughs> For our week trip to the Berkshires to visit the Buellers. Now, I get to Boston. I call my one of my best friends, my roommate, Chaim Yankel Levine. He's the H-Boss, and he built H-Boston. I said, Chaim Yankel. He's like, yo, mate. I said, Chaim Yankel, I'm in Boston. He's like, you're kidding. Come right now to Brooklyn. I said, okay. He says, come to this pizza place. I said, no problem. So I come to the pizza place. What's going on in the pizza place? There's a guy who's a manager of a shellfish restaurant. A Jewish guy who's dating a Goya. Not dating Goya. Engaged to a Goya. And Chaim Yankel has been trying to get him to come to Eretz Yisrael, to Eshatara, to learn for the summer. So what he was doing was learning with the manager of the restaurant every week till he could get his meat hooks into him to get him to come to learn an age. Well, the manager finally decided because the, the, the Gentile fiancé didn't like Chaim Yankel. And she put like an ultimatum on him and said, it's me or him. And he finally took Chaim Yankel out to lunch for a pizza to tell him, to give him the respect from all the classes, thanks but no thanks. I can't, I can't, and it's over. But I just want to take you out to lunch and say thank you. I walk in the pizza place. There's Chaim Young, he gives me a hug, and this other guy stands up to meet me, and it is love at first sight. Him and I had this connection that was so, which is what I was talking about in the seminar stuff, but it's like connection. There was a connection. And he, whatever, he, after a while, Chaim Yankel just left the restaurant. This guy and I just kept talking and talking. Eventually, I took him to Lakewood Colo. I finished with him. I taught him the last perk of Sota. I made a seum in the Lakewood Colo with this guy sitting right next to me at the seum because he was Messiah the last perk with me. So he got his first perk, Mishnah, perk of Gemara. I got my seum Masekta. And the guy comes to Eretz Yisrael and he, he actually became a Lubavitcher Chassid and uh, became a Balchu. He started at age, went on to Lubavitch, became a Lubavitcher Chassid. In so many of the great stories, you realize how Hashem's playing with things, sometimes so many years before. That story began 40 years ago in Brooklyn. It could never have happened without first what happened in Brooklyn. And we see that even something that was a chil Hashem, and it wasn't right, and it wasn't that, it was something that was bad. It was an Avera. 
But we see even that, Hashem's making cheshboinus. We have to always know that Hashem's bigger. Hashem's bigger. He has other plans. And we see that a fire escape that wasn't paid for in the end landed another yid to Turin Mitzvahs some 40 years later. Thank you very much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.